0: As we've been moving through the book of Ezekiel together, you'll have noticed if you've been here for a few weeks that we're not dealing with every chapter as we go along. And I probably ought to explain why that is. At least in the first half of the book, and it's a very long book, at least in the first half, Ezekiel has one main message to give it's a message of coming judgment. The city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Because of the sin of the people of Jerusalem. Ezekiel is preaching this message to his fellow exiles in Babylon. He wants them to stop trusting in Jerusalem. He wants them to see that they need to turn from their sin and trust in God. There's a real urgency to their need. And Ezekiel is working very hard to drive home that one message. What that means is there's a fair amount of repetition, at least in the first part of the book. And that's why we're not dealing with every single chapter. The bits that we pass over are basically re-emphasizing what we've already heard from Ezekiel. So if you wonder why we're dealing with some chapters and not others, that's the logic behind it. It's not an attempt to skip over the difficult bits. Hopefully if you were here last week you realized that. Last week we looked at chapter 16. In chapter 17, God again describes the mess that Israel is in. She's in a mess because of her unfaithfulness to God. And judgment is coming, Ezekiel says. This morning we're going to pick up in chapter 18. If you have one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 844. 844. And this chapter is concerned with a lie about grapes. I'm going to read the whole chapter. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or lie with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took and pledged for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between man and man. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous; he will surely live, declares the sovereign lord. Suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has done none of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends at usury and takes excessive interest. Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these terrible things, he will surely be put to death, and his blood will be on his own head. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sons his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from sin and takes no usury or excessive interest. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin. Because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked man will be charged against him. But... If a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But... If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of, and because of the sins he has committed, he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Here, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he will die. But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he has committed, and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considered all the offenses he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live, he will not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. Each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed. And get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. This is God's Word. And this chapter divides into three sections. First, we're introduced to the lie. Then we're given God's reply to the lie. And then finally, God's desire. First of all, we're presented with the lie in verses 1 and 2. Look again at those verses. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now obviously, having read the whole chapter, we know that this isn't really about grapes at all. So we need to be clear what it is about. Because the rest of the chapter is God's response to this. The proverb about grapes is expressing the popular belief that our past determines our present and our future. Sour grapes are grapes that aren't ripe. We've all had the experience of eating unripe fruit of some kind. It's quite hard to describe, but we all know what it feels like. It's bitter. You make a face when you taste it. The way this proverb puts it, Is that it sets your teeth on edge? It's a pretty accurate description. But what this proverb is saying is that the ones who actually ate the sour grapes aren't the ones who have to deal with the bitter taste. The ones who ate the grapes were the fathers. That's the parents or the ancestors. But it's the children, the descendants, who get the consequences. It's the children's teeth that are set on edge. They're the ones who taste the bitterness. Now if we think about the historical situation, we'll remember that the people using this proverb are the Israelites of Ezekiel's day. Some of them are in exile in Babylon, taken from their homeland by the Babylonians, and some of them are still back in Israel. Ezekiel's generation is experiencing a whole lot of bitterness And they look set to experience a lot more bitterness in the future. God has announced that the Babylonians are going to do much worse to Israel than what they've already done. But instead of asking, what are we to do? What does God want from us? The people are responding by saying, well, that's just the way it is. Our ancestors sinned and we suffer because of their sin. We will continue to suffer because of their sin. They eat the sour grapes, we get the bitter taste. They sinned, we get punished. Actually, it seems to go further than that. It seems to include the idea that our parents sinned, and guess what? We're sinning too. We've inherited it from them. That's just the way it is. We can't do anything about it. It's a kind of fatalism. Our past determines our present and our future. It's just the way things are. And not only is this fatalism, it's being used as an excuse for not turning back to God. It amounts to saying, these are the cards we've been dealt. We're not to blame. Is this kind of thinking popular today? Most definitely it is. We touched on it a couple of weeks ago. This thinking is everywhere today. Particularly when it comes to our negative behavior. We don't like to call it sin. We call it bad or negative choices. And it's often expressed along the lines of, I'm this way because of my parents. Or because of my teachers. They didn't raise me properly. They didn't develop my abilities. They didn't show me affection. They told me I was useless. They didn't teach me how to get along with people. That's why I'm this way. Sometimes it gets pushed even further back. I'm this way because of my genes. It's in my DNA. I'm programmed to think and behave this way. I inherited it from my lousy family tree. Don't blame me. All this is our way of saying the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. I once worked with a Christian lady who was very gifted. She could run ministry programs very well. But she was notorious for being nasty to people. She regularly cut people in pieces with her tongue. And whenever she was challenged about it, she always had the same response. It's just my personality. Maybe it's not pleasant, but it's the way I am. The same personality that enables me to get a lot of things done, it has a downside too. That was her attitude. Now she was either being fatalistic, maybe she believed she couldn't respond any differently, or maybe she was just making excuses for not trying to respond differently. Either way, that lady was claiming that her past, her DNA and her upbringing, and whatever else had formed her personality. Her past was determining her behavior in the present. And it would continue to do so in the future. Sometimes we like to bring our nationality into all of this. I behave this way because I'm from, you can fill in the blank, Northern Ireland or England or the Netherlands. This is just the way Northern Irish people are. We always get in fights. We're just abrasive people. Look at our history. We can't help it we're not really to blame when we keep on doing it. Our fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And sometimes we blame a past tragedy in our lives for the way we are now and for the way we expect to be in the future. We might say, I was sexually abused as a child. That's why I'm promiscuous today. Today. Or, that's why I'm permanently angry. Or, that's why I've become a sexual abuser myself. Or, my dad treated my mom badly, so now I treat my wife badly. Or, I had this accident years ago and that's why I'm bitter today. That's why I turn every conversation around to my own misery. Or maybe it's something that we did in the past. That choice we made is now what defines us and controls us today. Maybe it's a habit that's been part of our life for years. And we believe, or we say we believe, that it's just who, part of who we are now. Its claws are in too deep in us. It controls us and it is always going to control us. Our past determines our present and our future. Part of the reason this thinking is alive and well today is because there's an element of truth in it. Our past is powerful. Whether it's our genes or our upbringing or some major thing that happened to us, our past exerts a powerful force on us. The further we go in life, the more we realize just how powerful a force our past is. I grew up in the middle of what were known as the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And even today, that can be a powerful influence in my attitudes to a whole lot of different things. So we can all admit the power of our past. But that's very different from saying that our past determines us. Whenever we use, whether we use our past as an excuse for the way we are or whether we genuinely believe that we're controlled by our past, whatever way this plays out in our lives and to whatever degree it plays out, God has a message for us. God's word comes to announce to us that our past need not have power over us. In the main part of chapter 18, we find God's reply to the proverb in verse 2. He assures us that the reality is very different from the proverb. His reply is in two parts. First of all, in verses 3 to 20, God says, What matters is your response to me. Look at verse 3. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. God is talking here about personal responsibility. In verse 3 he says, Your proverb about the grapes needs to be binned. Scrap it. Scrap the thinking that goes along with it and replace it with a new understanding. The key factor in your present and future is not your past. It's not your genes or your parents or anything else that has happened to you. The key factor for you is that I have a claim on your life. Every living soul belongs to me. And that includes you. You can't excuse your sin by pointing to your past. And you don't have to be paralyzed by the power of your past. God says what matters is this. I look at you and I say mine. I claim you, every part of you. Your past is not an excuse for you to ignore my claims. Nor is your past a hindrance to me making good on my claim. What matters is your response to me. God says, I don't need an explanation of why you are the way you are. Nor do I need to hear the reasons why you think you're a lost cause. You're not going to be excused because of your past. Nor are you going to be damned because of your past. God says, I'm making a claim on you now. How are you going to respond? And God goes on to explain that what he wants is obedience. It's all illustrated for us in terms of three generations in one family. Verses 5 to 9 describe a man. Then verses 10 to 13 describe his son. And finally, verses 14 to 17 describe his son what we find is that God deals with each of them individually. His verdict on one doesn't carry over to any of the others. The first man is described as righteous in verse 5. To be righteous means to be in a right relationship with God. And in the following verses, God describes the way this righteous man lives. Look again at verses 6 to 8. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or lie with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between man and man. Parts of this might seem a little strange to us, but all of this is drawn from the Old Testament law. It's a little snapshot of what it meant for an Israelite to live in obedience to God. So this man avoids idol worship. He turns away from allegiance to false gods. He honors God with his sexual activity. The sin of adultery doesn't need any explanation. But the second half of verse 6 says that the righteous man doesn't lie with a woman during her period. The Old Testament law forbade this. We don't need to go into the reasons why. The point is, the law didn't just deal with sex outside of marriage. It directed people within marriage as well. The righteous man or woman is concerned to honor God in every aspect of sex. The righteous man or woman is also concerned to honor God in business, and charity. He doesn't oppress anyone. When the poor took out a loan, they would hand over an item like their cloak as a pledge or a guarantee that they would pay it back. When a righteous man has had a loan repaid to him, he's careful to return the cloak or whatever he'd been given as a guarantee. The point is, he doesn't take advantage in his business. And above and beyond that, he gives sacrificially food and clothing for the hungry and the naked. Verse 9 sums it up. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Verses 6 to 8 were not an exhaustive list. They were a little sketch of the Israelite man or woman who obeys God. This man has acknowledged God's claim on his life, and he responds by obeying the law that God had given him to obey. So this is not Pharisaism or legalism. It's not some kind of self-righteousness. It's simply an illustration of what it means to respond appropriately to God. When God's word comes to us, we don't make excuses. we listen. We accept what he says and we obey. The first man was righteous, but his son is very different. Verse 10, suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has done none of them. And then we're given basically a mirror image of the list in verses 6 to 8. The son doesn't (coughs) respond to God with obedience. And God says in verse 13, Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things, he will surely be put to death, and his blood will be on his own head. God dealt with the son on the basis of his response, not his dad's response. Then in verse 14, it's flipped around again. But suppose this son has a son, who sees all the sins his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. This son had a rotten past. His dad, we're told, was a murderer, an adulterer, an oppressor, a robber, and a greedy idol worshiper. This boy had a pretty bad start in life. But he doesn't use his past as an excuse. Nor does he allow it to determine his own life. He rejects the powerful force of his past. And he responds to God with obedience. Verses 15 to 17 describe his obedience. And the end of verse 17 says, He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. God's message in this whole section, his message to the Israelites, and his message to us today is that what matters is your response to me. So far, the examples have been about children responding to God differently than their parents. But in verses 21 to 24, God takes it further. He says, we've addressed the issue of your family baggage. We've talked about how your parents responded to God. We've seen that I won't deal with you on the basis of your family history. And now let's talk about your own personal history. Your response to me up to this point in your life. Let's talk about that. And God says your own response yesterday or last year is not the important thing. What matters is your response today. Verse 21. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? These verses are the second part of God's response to the lie. He says, don't treat your own past like a bank account. In other words, don't imagine that your life up to this point has been paid into some big vault. Don't think your present and future are determined by what's in that vault or what's not in it. Don't think you're going to be forever chained by debt because your life up to this point has been disobedient or because you've committed what you think is the unbelievable, unforgivable act of disobedience. God says it doesn't have to be that way. He says you need not be crushed by the debt of your past disobedience. You're not held captive by your past sinful decisions. Verses 21 and 22 describe a wicked man who repents. He refuses to be held by a sinful past. He turns away from it. He hears God's word. He acknowledges God's claim on his life. And he responds to God with obedience. God says that man will live or that woman will live. She is now free from the debt of her past. Someone has said that sin is not a cul-de-sac. It's not one of those streets that you drive down only to discover there's no way forward. There is a way forward. Another way to put it is that no matter how dark and enslaving your sin is, no matter how much it feels like you're trapped in a little dungeon with your sin, There is an open door out of it. There can be a future for you away from the darkness and slavery of your sin. And in verse 23, God adds something that He'll repeat at the end. He says, That is what I want. I do not delight in getting people for their sin. I delight to see men and women freed from the debt of their past sin. That's what I take pleasure in, God says. But then he has a very sober warning to those who might be complacent. Those who might think they've got enough credit in the bank. Those who think maybe they can afford a bit of disobedience. To those people, God says, you can't live off interest from your past obedience. Verse 24. But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of, and because of the sins he has committed, he will die. The Bible says it a thousand times in a thousand different ways. Don't rely on some prayer you prayed or some commitment you made 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. The question is, where do you stand with God today? How will you respond to God today? Your years of tithing and attending and serving, those are all good things, but they haven't earned you the right to hold a grudge today or to spread gossip today. Or to become bitter when things don't go your way today. None of us can live off interest from our past obedience. Well, at this point in Ezekiel's message, it seems that his audience have started to mutter. In verse 25, Ezekiel picks up on what they're saying. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. What's their problem? Well, they don't seem happy with the idea that God might discount someone's past. How is it fair that someone can have their sinful past forgiven? How is it fair that God can tell someone else that their good deeds haven't earned them any credit? In today's terms, we might say, how is it fair that God will forgive a mass murderer if he genuinely repents? and yet tell ordinary, respectable people that they're going to hell for their sin? How is that fair? Well, asking that question shows that we misunderstand the basis for God's forgiveness. We are forgiven not because of some standard that we've made up and then find that we measure up to, we're not forgiven because of some heavenly bank account that we've been paying into. We're forgiven when we respond to God appropriately. And for you and me today, that means trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Our salvation isn't based on what we have done or what we have failed to do, it's based on what Jesus did for us, dying in our place. That's why we can escape being crushed by the debt of our past disobedience. Jesus has paid the debt for us. And that's also why we can live an apparently good life and yet still suffer God's eternal punishment. That can happen because God doesn't ask us to try to earn our way to heaven. He asks us to accept the way he has provided to heaven. God calls us to leave the issue of our past with him. We need to focus on our response to him today. And God leaves us in no doubt what his desire is. God's desire is that we choose life. In verses 30 to 32. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. earlier chapters of Ezekiel have given us a very clear view of God's hatred and anger against sin. And that is crucial to a right understanding of God. It might be the aspect of his character that gets most ignored today. However, that's not all there is to say about God. We mustn't imagine that he's gleefully rubbing his hands together, just waiting to dish out some judgment. Nor should we imagine that God is neutral, that he's careless about our response, that he's not really bothered whether we burn in judgment or whether we enter the new heaven and earth. No, God makes his heart very clear. He is on the side of life. He takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. His desire is for us to turn from our sin and live. This morning, we don't stand before a God who begrudges us forgiveness. His arms are open to forgive. Through the prophet Micah, God says that he is ready to hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Here in verse 30, God says, sin need not be your downfall. There's one final thing to notice. In verse 31, God says, Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Several times in this book, God says, I will give you a new heart and spirit. Here, it's a command. Get a new heart and spirit. So which is it? Do we get it or does God give it to us? The answer is that God gives it to us but we must come to get it. We must respond to his call. We must take personal responsibility to seek God. And we must come to him longing to be changed. Not just to have our past sins forgiven but to be increasingly free from them in the present and the future. We must come to Him longing to be recreated from the inside out. That too is part of what it means to respond appropriately to God. We don't just come to Him for forgiveness and a ticket to heaven, we come to Him for a new heart and a new spirit. A heart and spirit that isn't content to follow in the sins of our ancestors. A hardened spirit that doesn't excuse sin is, well, it's just the way I am. Part of God's desire for us and part of what he is able to do for us is to begin to deliver us from the power of sin today. He wants us to come to him with a holy discontentment with our sin. Ezekiel 18 has told us that you and I don't have to carry around the weight of yesterday's sin. We can find forgiveness and freedom if we'll turn away from that sin. It's also told us that as we move forward, we mustn't imagine we can live off some sort of interest that we earned by yesterday's obedience. Each day we have a new responsibility to respond to God with new obedience. And as our understanding of God's word grows, then our obedience must grow too. In just a moment, we're going to close our service with a song that we often use in evangelism. But it's a very important song for Christians to sing too. This song reminds us that every day we need to respond to God's call. And every day we need a fresh measure of God's grace. The song is above the voices of the world around me. So let's sing together. And we'll sing this as a song of recommitment.